Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Roderick Young, Executive Vice President and Chief Communications and Marketing Officer for Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. In this podcast, Roddy shares his nearly three decades of experience in communications and public relations in a wide variety of governmental and private organizations, among them including being the press secretary for NASA, as well as being a consultant for firms involved in public relations crises while working with MSL Group TMG Strategies prior to coming to his current role at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. This is a valuable podcast for any current or aspiring health leader to listen to because Roddy reveals some of the key mistakes leaders make when working with strategic communications and dealing with the press and provides insight on how to engage in a long-term strategic messaging effort. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at HealthLF. That's at H-E-A-L-T-H-L-F. Thanks for listening. And here is Roddy Young. Welcome to The Forge, Roddy. Hello, Mark. Thank you for having me. Uh, So you graduated from the University of Maryland with a degree in government and politics with a minor in Spanish. Uh, Why did you go to the University of Maryland and why did you study government and politics? My mom is Mexican. My dad's American. Uh, I grew up in Maryland. Okay. My mom is a mathematician, and my dad studied politics as well and went into PR. And he said, whatever you do, son, don't go into politics or government or PR. And I did all the opposite of what he said. <laughs> so the, the lesson here is if you're a parent, don't tell your kids what to do because they'll do the opposite. So I went to Maryland uh, after going to a high school that was specific about science and technology. I thought I was interested in in engineering path. Uh, all three of my uncles are engineers. And I thought maybe that was for me. And I went to Maryland, uh, into the engineering school, and found out that it wasn't. And I went to a, a three or 400 level class, probably in my second or third year at the recommendation of a friend. And it was in uh, international law in, in the politics department at Maryland. And there was nothing more interesting and engaging the power of persuasion, the history, debate, expression, I just, I was blown over. It's like, this is where I want to go. Oh, okay. So I changed my major into government politics in Maryland, and that was the beginning of the path uh, of my career. Neat. You were the press secretary and professional staff member for the U.S. Representative Esteban Torres, who represented a district from California. How did you come to work for Congressman Torres? So uh, as part of my initial career, uh, I'll go back a little bit, but just to give you the the breadcrumbs, pretty much my entire career, the breadcrumbs were following people who were mentors or guided me on the path. Okay. And coming out of college, one of the last things I did in college was to take a seminar type course. And part of that seminar was to do an internship on Capitol Hill. And that internship led me to a member from West Virginia. And I didn't know the first thing about West Virginia, really, uh, other than topically, uh, but got to learn about it. Uh, one of the people in that office recommended me for a position with a lobbying firm, 
It was a very successful lobbying firm. They leveraged themselves to buying lobbying firms all over the country. Within a year, they went bankrupt. One of the lead attorney lobbyists there, her husband was a head of association called the Latin American Management Association. And as he was president of that association, this member of Congress, Esteban Torres, asked him to become the sub subcommittee staff director, who was then banking, now financial services. And that person asked me to join him on that financial services subcommittee. Okay. And so that's how I, I came to know Congressman Torres. So you're from Maryland. You've, you started your political work with the representative from West Virginia, and then you wound up working for someone from California. Interesting how that flows. Exactly. What was interesting is most of the staff in the West Virginia office had some California providence. So the California connection okay. and West Virginia connection will play through in my career. We'll talk interesting. a little bit Interesting. Okay. So this wasn't really your first job in public relations, and you'd had some experience working with the lobbying firm and other right. things. Right. So my first job on the Hill was more legislative, working for the lobbying firm, a little bit more legislative government relations. Okay. It wasn't until I went to the association, did a little bit more press, and then when I went to the banking subcommittee, a lot more press about the hearings that we were doing, Fair Credit Reporting Act, various banking laws, coinage okay. and consumer type financial services uh, legislation. So that's where I really got my beginning okay. in press. Okay. What kind of skills did you learn in this earlier position that you've kind of relied on since then? Now, that's a great question in that that was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to remember the specific things that I learned in the, that instance. And what I think about a lot, and some of this is gradual because learning is a never-ending experience, in something that I enjoy today. Sure. That's what I, I, I can wake up in the morning and learn things from my six-year-old twin boys and my nine-year-old daughter that just blow my mind. And it's a beautiful sure. thing. And yeah. I can learn things from you and my colleagues. And that's why work is fun, because sure. I can learn. But back then, I think a lot about listening. I think a lot about questioning uh, what is given to you as fact. So not in a rude way, but not necessarily accepting what is provided to you as gospel. So as a press person, it's pretty important to your public, your audience, and the media with whom you're trying to communicate through to that audience that you're giving them information that's correct. Absolutely. And so I remember one time writing something and my staff director, who I consider very much a mentor, that he said, How do you, where did you get this from? Uh, how do you know this is true? As I said, it was in the congressional record. And so he goes and checks it and comes back and says, that's not true. So it was a very important lesson was you know, listening, not accepting what you think is truth as truth because it may not be. Okay. So doing a, a deeper check and the lessons are I, we could spend hours, but sure. those are two top level. So, so it sounds like, I mean, particularly in, a, in the world of politics, that would probably have been a particularly important thing to check. Absolutely. And in, so politics, uh, I often like to say, is a reflection of society. And in the bell curve of society, you have bad actors and good actors, uh, exceptional actors. And politics is probably a reflection of that. And oftentimes, politics gets written about as being terrible. Right. Uh, there are things about it that are challenging and difficult and probably a reason why I don't work in it anymore, but it isn't all terrible and all the actors aren't terrible. Sure. But it is, but the things that happen in politics are not dissimilar from what happens in a boardroom or in a nonprofit's discussions. There are some of the same things that you and I would talk about. 
How do we make these decisions? How do we come to them? Uh, they tend to be a little bit more public, a little bit more uh, tinged with you know, political motives, but some of the discussions sure. end up being about, you know, how do we fund this? Right. How do we get here from, from well, here and to And everyone's there. pursuing their interests, right. in, and, and that's a perfectly acceptable part of the, of the process, right? right? right. But, but right. It's certainly everyone's going to have their spin, right. which I imagine is something that... Right. I, I'm not a, I don't like the word spin. Okay. Uh, spin, <laughs> spin sounds that, like that, you're trying to achieve something bad. Okay. Uh, I'd like to talk about sharing information, okay. educating, okay. Uh, storytelling, and it's up to you whether or not to be persuaded by those stories, those points of education. I, I don't, spin to me is very pejorative, and I don't want any audience of mine to be, to <laughs> sure. feel as if I were spinning them. I wasn't using it as a verb, as more of a, no, it's common. Adjective, I'm, not, like, uh, I'm not blaming you at all, uh, but it's very common for sure. people to refer to Absolutely. it. And uh, if there are uh, instances where if people feel like they're being spun, then they probably are, and you probably should question that. <laughs> And that's, that's probably something, a skill that you need to make sure doesn't happen. Something. Try not to happen. And uh, like the dessert menu at a restaurant, they have the vanilla and the chocolate. And sometimes it's up to you which way you decide. I can't sure. tell everybody to agree with me on every topic. Sure. So I, I try to present the case. And if you agree with me, you know, I've hopefully done a good job of presenting those uh, facts so that you can hopefully advocate in, this, in a similar manner to what we've presented. If you disagree, then you, maybe you're even better informed than you were before I presented. Maybe now you're moderated in your uh, disagreement with me. Okay. Your next job seems really cool to me, and that was you were the press secretary for the NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that position? What were your primary responsibilities, and what was that like? So as press secretary, I went to almost every launch, wow. every landing, participated in just about every major event that the NASA administrator, the top person at NASA, went to publicly. And it really was one of the best jobs I've had in my entire career. Here I am, a young kid, getting to run around not just the United States, but parts of the globe right. promoting NASA, uh, America's space program. And when I look back, and, and even in the moment, it, what an incredible job to work with some of America's you know, finest uh, men and women in the pursuit of what many people say is impossible or too hard or too risky. And they come to work every day with that single-minded pursuit. They could do things elsewhere, probably often for more money, yet they choose sure. NASA. Yeah. And human spaceflight, very visible, very cool. I love that part of it. But there's so much more. The Earth science that tells you about El Nino, space science that takes us you know, to Cassini and to, to Mars. Yeah. Uh, it's the aerospace uh, research that we you know, hopefully design faster, more fuel-efficient jets that take us, you know, maybe to Japan in five hours instead of 18. That is just awe-inspiring. Uh, it was really wonderful. That must have been an amazing learning experience as you were talking about just, you know, wanting to, enjoying learning all the time. You must have just been surrounded by amazing minds. And That's right. So as I've come to say in, in jest is I can say with 100% certainty that what I do is not rocket science. <laughs> and now I'm working for Dartmouth Hitchcock, I could say it's not brain surgery. There you go. Uh, okay. I get so much joy working with people so much smarter than me. And I, I, 
I can ask them questions. I get to be curious George and learn more about things that I'm interested in. And so the common thread of my work hasn't just been communication. It's been in the pursuit of helping tell stories that interest me right. and tend to be in very complex and scientific realms. So NASA, computer industry, and now Dartmouth-Hitchcock and medicine. Um, I, I, it sounds, so what I'm hearing is kind of a storytelling element to what you do. How does that tie into kind of what, what are the importance of press relations for a government agency like NASA? I mean, uh, someone might say, well, it's a government agency. Why do they need, you know, why do they need a press uh, corps or, or press, press agent? Uh, sorry. Why would they need um, a press secretary? Uh, who are they trying to influence with their communications and, and you know, what, what, was the, what was your kind of contribution that's, there? That's a great question. And like so many things, there's a team. And there were, by no stretch of the imagination was I the only person doing this. And, no, and, and there were many people who helped NASA look uh, good and sometimes you know, trying to uh, deal with issues that go awry. When I was there, the, uh, the first uh, Mars mission uh, plowed into the, the Martian surface because of the the uh, conversion problem mathematically. And so that's a bad day. It's a, a failed mission. Yeah. But I remember very clearly that the media attention, very high. So part of it is educating the public and Congress, you know, the people who watch over the money for the spending on missions that to some think isn't valuable. So we have to uh, recalibrate people about why it's valuable, why take the risk, uh, what happened, so, uh, so the public wants to know. To bring it down to the Newton foot pounds is not exactly a, a relatable concept, right? Much less going to Mars. So that's that's a thin layer. Uh, every member of the public, every taxpayer, is effectively a shareholder in NASA. You, with your hard-earned tax money, part of it goes to fund NASA and its missions. Congress is the steward of that money, and that can be for better or for worse. Sometimes it doesn't go exactly the way you think. You know, there are missions that are requirements by Congress that maybe if you did it in a scientific, scientifically peer-reviewed manner, you wouldn't do some of these things, just like DOD probably wouldn't fund some of its sure. DOD projects. But that's the nature of our current democracy. But the, the essence of it is there is an interest in it, People should be educated by its findings. If you're going to do spend that much money at that time, it was in between 14 and 16 billion dollars. Uh, you need to show your results and be able to defend them and answer to the calls of the public where they ask what went wrong or what went right. And at that time, uh, some of the big missions. Uh, obviously, we went to Mir. We did the first stages of the uh, space station. We did the beginnings of the Mars program, the lots of space science, Earth science. And probably the most visible was the second flight of John Glenn. So big, Maybe. huge media event. So you're part of the team, many, many players. And uh, I'm privileged to say I was among them. But I can't take credit for everything that happened during that time. And sure. So it was really gratifying. So you, you mentioned when things go bad. That's an important moment for you to be available to to be able to address, like when when the uh, Mars lander uh, failed. So clearly, there's a there's a that's one of the important things is dealing with problems. But there's also is there a there's also a longer term strategy. I assume you were involved in as well. Absolutely. How do how do those differentiate? Or how do those differ? Uh, well, they differ in that you don't choose to have the bad happen, but you have to sure. plan for it. And I remember my boss, Dan Golden, at that time, 
talking about the uh, the Mars mission, and he ta- he brought it down to relatable levels, in that there are days when you drive your car, and you go. It could even be in a familiar city, and for some reason you take the wrong turn. We make mistakes as human beings. Sure. We are fallible. Right. And this was utterly complex, mm-hmm. and pretty much everything that NASA does in space is utterly complex. So he wasn't asking for a pass because we own up to these projects because we believe that we can achieve them. But failure is also part of the process of the learning. So in in the planning for the future, when you're asking for uh, the American taxpayer and Congress to fund the next great big mission, part of it is explaining why we should take the risk in the face of potential failure. So whenever we send anybody up to space, the 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 possibility of risk of catastrophic failure is much higher than most people would accept if they were to get on a bus, for example. And I, I've heard different figures from 1 in 25 to 1 in 225, but still, that's a pretty high risk. Sure. Yet every astronaut, the not that they choose that the, the space shuttle would fail, but when it fails, they are lined up for the next one because they believe in the science and the pursuit of the future to the goals that allow us to learn more, whether it's on the space station or going maybe one day to Mars, which is even more complex. We just had the astronaut uh, return uh, from a year in space. Right. Awe-inspiring, daunting. The, the next level of space discovery is so much more complex, so much more expensive. And I'm hopeful, uh, having you know been privileged to be among the brethren who work at NASA, that we will get there. And the science in the pursuit of more learning will allow us to do the next big thing, but sure. it's not not simple. Yeah, no. Um, uh, NASA is fascinating for its very complexity mm-hmm. and the challenges that they take on. I was uh, so I'm. I mean, what I'm hearing you say is yes, we've got to deal with you know when things happen, we've got to deal with those. But you also seem, it's what I'm hearing you say is there's a. Uh, some of the strategy involved is actually communicating NASA's mission and, and goals to, say, Congress, so that you can get funding. You were involved in that process then? As part of the team. Okay. Uh, we had a government relations department, congressional relations department, so they were writing the testimony, but t- I got to see it, and I went up to the Hill with my boss as he testified before the Budget Committee and the Science Committee and the Appropriations Committee. And you're looking at what is the compelling story that makes you want to be part of this magnificent jewel, in my mind, yeah. of American government. Yeah. Uh, and you've got to communicate that to these people who control that. the purse. That's right. Okay. Uh, against myriad other ways to spend the sure. federal dollar. Sure. And those are tough choices. Yeah. So you help help tell that story and... As you, part of the and team. team, not and the team. Not, not, yeah. yeah, sorry, not, yeah. not necessarily just you. Right. Uh, but I'm trying to get at the, you know, what is this function in, 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 right. a, in a government agency? Because, you know, uh, right. maybe somebody said, should. Why are they doing that? Um, yeah, why are we I, spending money to have so, NASA talk to Congress? You know, uh, a great friend of mine to to this day is uh, one of the main NASA photographers. So one of the ways that NASA tells its story is through images. Sure. You see on the cover of the paper, there's astronaut Kelly coming back from space. So we have to send somebody to Russia to record his reentry into Earth 
you know, like meteorite landing back on the surface, you know, with all the science that it takes to land safely, and that he walks uh, off the Soyuz capsule and is able to tell us what it was like to spend a year in space. So there's many pieces, the videography, the photography, the the ability to write in a way that the American public can understand the why, answer to the questions, and how much money, the partnerships that it takes to get there. It's a lot of different audiences too, right? Mm-hmm. So you're communicating the public, you're communicating to legislators, other scientists, I guess. Other well. scientists who would like to learn from what we sure. learn from. Neat. Absolutely. What's the importance of, of maintaining relationships with reporters from the various media? Uh, it's, it's key, and in my time doing this type of role, the media has changed, the landscape has changed dramatically. There were more, there were a certain set of publications or outlets that were the courted center of media, and now it feels like there are more outlets. There are still top-level outlets, but now there are more outlets, and people's attention for these expanded universe of outlets were spread almost like in a skimming headline consumption level, where in general most people aren't digging into news as much as they used to. So the storytelling has become different. The, the way that you tell stories has now gone down from longer videos to shorter videos. The, the packages of uh, stories that you're trying to communicate are, are even tighter than they were before. And the, the top-level outlets may not be interested in what you're trying to tell because they don't have the resources to dig into all the topics that you're trying to convey. Okay. How did you go about managing the relationships you had with the uh, with, with various media? So it's mostly a a relationship, almost uh, like the the clients I have here. They're asking for something, and I'm trying to facilitate getting those questions answered. And what I've learned mostly is that my job depends on doing that swiftly, accurately getting them the right people. And I don't love the word flack, but it, it's, uh, it's a, a recognition of the role that I play. I'm not the person with whom they'd like to speak. They want to speak to the subject matter expert, and I'm delighted to do that. I love being the facilitator of great conversations, the inquiry from the media on behalf of the public with uh, person X, person Y with in the organization that I get to work with. So it may be a space scientist, it may be the budget person, it may be a doctor. So that's Do you my prepare role. them when they... My you, side? Your side? Absolutely. So, before, Absolutely. so part What's of the a, facilitation, the that? Uh, you want to do some background check. So the homework is not only good for you, but good for your client, your, uh, the principal with the, the subject matter expert that you're trying to engage with the media. So you want that person to have a sense of they know who they're talking to. Uh, What do they like to talk about? Uh, What's their interest in you? What have they written about in the past? What's the direction of this particular interview? And uh, not that I'm an attorney, but I think a lot of the work of a media relations person is to anticipate the questions of the media, just as a lawyer anticipates the question 
questions uh, that his client might get on the stand. Sure. Or her, her, her client. And it's very rare, uh, after done, having done this for a while, that you can't dream up 98% of the questions that will be asked. Okay. You, you know what's going to yeah. be asked. Yeah. And so that allows your client, your subject matter expert, to have the confidence, oh, I already thought about this. I know the answer to this. It's also to give your subject matter expert the, the confidence that they know how to answer. A lot of people are afraid of the media. There's no need to be afraid. You, the reason they're coming to you is because they want to talk to you. You're noted in some regard on this topic, and you should have the confidence to be able to impart your answers. And when you don't know it, just say, I don't know. This is, seems to me a, a different scale than what you'd been operating at. Was there a significant difference to you, you know, going from your work with the congressman up to, to NASA? Uh, it is very different. So Capitol Hill is politics, and the, the scale of politics is international uh, in Washington. It's true. And the, uh, we worked on the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, with uh, Congressman Torres. Uh, so pretty high visibility uh, on that type of topic. The scale of NASA, particularly in example, the John Glenn launch, is enormous. And the international media, the number of media who attended that launch was uh, something that I'd never seen before. But unbelievably enjoyable. If I had to do it myself, it would be impossible. Again, credit a great organization and teamwork. Sure. Uh, but to be part of that, very exciting. The, the number of calls that are coming in uh, on a daily basis into an organization size of NASA is much larger than any congressman's office. But there's a team that knows how to channel those, to process them, to get the right answer. But the scale is very, very different. Yeah. And, the, and the direction, too, because it's ultimately a scientific agency, not a political agency. Sure, sure. So a different kind of scale, I guess, would yeah. be the way to say that. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you left NASA uh, and worked for a couple of years for a company called Camelot Communications uh, Corporation. Then you moved on in 2002 to the MSL Group TMG Strategies, where you were the Senior Vice President and Reputation Management Practice Chair. What did MSL Group do? And how did your role as the Reputation Management Practice Chair fit into the organization's mission? Right. So th that job transitioned just to give uh, your listeners an understanding of the connections yeah. of, the, of my career path. So I, I left Capitol Hill and uh, had been an advocate of the Clinton administration. I was a political appointee uh, to the NASA, to NASA for, uh, during the second term of President Clinton and enjoyed that and come to the end of that uh, I had the choice of you know or I had to decide what I was going to do next and I decided I remember talking to my father about wanting to do the uh, dot-com industry oh, and okay. my, my dad said yeah that sounds pretty risky I don't, I don't know about that it sounds you know kind of like the. And what year was this roughly? This is 2000 Okay. So it sounds kind of right. like the gold rush, you know, maybe 1850. He had a good sense. <laughs> he did. He did. But I'm glad I did it. Yeah. And going to risk reward. Uh, the risk, I, le I learned so much. Uh, again, very technically savvy group that I was representing, I was learning about. So this was at Camelot? Yes. Okay. Yeah, learning about the, the infrastructure that drives the internet. I didn't know the difference between XML and Apache and uh, uh, scalable vector graphics before then, and I had to learn it, and it was very enjoyable. That that period, dot com to dot bomb, 
comes to an end. And in 2002-3, I needed to figure out what I was going to do after that. Basically, the uh, there was a big uh, retrenchment in funding for Internet startups at the time, which is fine, but it affected me personally. So I found myself consulting back in D.C., and particularly with a gentleman named Dan McGinn. And Dan McGinn had been the chief of staff to the first member of Congress with whom I worked in 1987. And I uh, worked with him, and he said, Roddy, why don't you come and join my firm? And his firm, I'd been, I stayed with him from uh, 2002, three to uh, 2011. And during that time, he sold his firm to MSL Group. So that's the, the, okay. uh, the, the uh, cont- continuation of my career path, but all connected back to my very first job. Nice. And Dan McGinn, to me, you know, in addition to my mentor at the association who took me to the banking committee, those two people are my mentors, people who formed me and taught me a lot of what I know. This gentleman, Dan, is an unbelievable communicator, an unbelievable practitioner of crisis communications. And the skills that he has are partly learned and partly gift. Uh, his gift is he can read 10 books in the course of a week, oh my. watch uh, news media, and uh, listen to conversations, assimilate them in a way that I've never seen anybody do, and then you're asking for advice, and in real time, he will offer his view and somehow bring all these pieces together in a way that is captivating and makes you want to trust him. He's just an unbelievable crisis communicator. Uh, So I had the privilege to work for him. I know that I will never reach to his capability, but it's an aspirational goal to to have watched somebody who's so good at what he does. And one of the things that he did in his career is that he learned in crisis communications that the pain point for crisis communications usually comes in not through the door of communications, but through the door of the general counsel. So his principal point of contact in companies was with the general counsel or the outside uh, legal counsel. So when it, uh, uh, a question is, well, why didn't you work with the communicators or the PR mm-hmm. shop? And it's not that you don't work with them. In fact, you have to. It's that you're working hand-in-hand where the pain point is. So the inside or outside counsel is trying to help the company in one of its most difficult times and how to get out beyond it. And the legal strategy and the communication strategy need to be working in concert. And where you see it go awry, sometimes will have been brought in after a failed communications effort where the PR team will hire a comms team and the legal team will hire a crisis team and the strategies differ. And that doesn't produce a good result. And what I've learned from Dan is that you want, even if you're in-house communications, you want to work very closely with your legal counsel. You want to be friends with them. You want that in a moment of crisis that you are going the same direction. Sure. Because the, the opposite is failure. So this firm particular, or your role was, it was crisis, sorry, the term you used was crisis 
management? Uh, yeah, crisis management, crisis communications, crisis, crisis reputation management, high profile conflict, all those types so, of roles. So the, you, you were brought in when, there, when a firm was in crisis in yes. particular? Yes, either litigation, high profile conflict, some, you know, company to company, uh, it could be intellectual property battle, uh, dispute over uh, some, some uh, patent. So it was, it, the types of crises could differ. Sure. Uh, it was rare that it was personal, uh, so we didn't deal with uh, CEO X uh, went out and uh, okay. was drunk driving. It wasn't that. It was more about the company. How did you? So you said you were often brought in by the legal side. How did you work with the PR side, and why was the decision? Why wasn't the relationship there between in, in these firms where the PR and the legal were working together? Did you, did you all bring in, a, I'm assuming you guys brought in a particular skill set that maybe goes beyond what's normally in-house. Is that right? Uh, so I'm trying to make an analogy. This isn't too tortured, uh, and I haven't thought this through completely. But uh, think of a, a town, uh, it has a fire department. But then there's a mass casualty. So you need uh, EMTs from other places. You need the uh, air ambulance to come in and get people in and out fast. So it's uh, at a resource, its expertise in having seen this in other places. Oftentimes, not oftentimes, sometimes companies have never been through what they've been through before. And they, not to me individually, but collectively at the firm, there is usually a a set of characteristics that we've seen before. Okay. So it's not unfamiliar. So I think it's those pieces. Uh, there, are, there are times when it's just purely additive that the team is boosting the capabilities of that team. There are instances where companies, to their good credit, they've always done a good job. And the job of the PR marketing team is to promote. So they've never seen the bad. And so now they're caught in a situation where they're unfamiliar and they want help because the, their job heretofore has been talking about nothing but uh, rising uh, share prices, uh, great product reviews and uh, promotions. And here something terrible happens and they want the support. How do we get through this? And part of the work it, that is maybe uh, a, a, a personal affliction is that I enjoyed going into these situations, almost like a firefighter who goes in knowing or, or hoping that, that I could help. And being part of that kind of tough moment and coming out of the backside and looking at each other and I and saying together with the, the person in the company, we did it. Yeah. We saved the baby. Yeah. And you know, oftentimes you, you're friends for uh, years to come because you've been through a tough situation, but you made it through to the other side, and you can look back fondly that it, you, know, you overcame what looked like a terrible situation. Indeed, um, you mentioned you mentioned uh, mentors, a couple of mentors. Uh, your your friend Dan. Mm -hmm. um, so you you said you admired what he could do. How did did he did you approach him and say you know hey I see you're do what you're doing I want to try to be able to do that. Can you explain to me? I mean, what was the nature of the mentorship? Beyond, was it was it specifically setting an example that you then 
uh, tried to emulate, or was it, or did he actually coach you to say, "Hey, you can, you know, in order to be more like me, you would need to do this"? Uh, he never said it exactly like that. <laughs> I'm sure, he probably didn't. But and he's very, very busy. Uh, but I got to spend enormous amounts of time with him, and I asked him lots of questions. Okay. And I saw what he did. Yeah. So probably more by example. Mm-hmm. Um, having worked with him for a while, but uh, there wasn't a five-step process. If you do these five things, you could be sure. me. And what I know, and this is probably you know, career coaching 101, is that you want to capture the best things about you, accentuate you to be the best role player uh, that is you. In other words, even on in my wildest imaginations, if I tried my hardest, I will never be damn again. Sure. I'm not damn again. Right. And so I, that's kind of the beauty of being a human being is you can admire somebody else for the skills they have. And I bring something else to the game. I'm sure that he doesn't have. I don't know if any of them is better than he, but he's just gifted, just yeah. pure yeah. out gifted. And all you can do is say, I'm privileged to have worked and learned some things. And it's okay that uh, I can't walk into the boardroom of Fortune 10 and listen to you and then within 30 minutes have a contract to represent you without any RFP. Right. Uh, right. Just sheer. That's advice. a gift. It is a true gift. Yeah. And it's not, he wasn't a hard salesperson. He's calm. Yeah. It's incredible. But I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is you called him a mentor, so I'm curious as to how you regarded him as a mentor. So he clearly had a, a he answered questions for you. He showed you, kind of showed you how, or, or you were able to follow what he did. Right. Um, I think it's the, the privilege of being yeah. around him, working with him, spending many hours on the road okay. in service of clients. So crisis reputation management, you're often on the road in a crisis situation. Sure. So watching him answering questions in those moments, so you know, a really how, intimate how, relationship. Right. Yeah. So how did how did you get from X to Y to yeah. deliver Z solution? Yeah. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and with my previous mentor on Capital, Albert Hawkes, it was uh, uh, things as simple as how to write clear, uh, how to have three top message points instead of write, writing some long scribe. And I mentioned the thing about checking the facts. Uh, and it, this is not terribly unique, but you learned it from someone. How, do, you really, do you really know what you're saying? And so it's healthy to, to question for the point that if I'm going to repeat this assertion, particularly in the media or with the media, that my assertion is true. Uh, believable, persuasive, rather than me taking something out of the congressional record and copying it and say, this is what so-and-so said. That's not believable, particularly when it's wrong. This sounds like this was really kind of a different kind of work than you'd done in the past. Uh, the emphasis on crisis management as opposed to kind of probably, I mean, you, you had crisis management, but you also had kind of the longer term. Was, was it primarily one crisis and then another crisis and another crisis kind of, or, or did you have long-term relationships with firms as well? No, that's a great question. Uh, and one thing that, that Dan said about one of our colleagues in Epitia Research, uh, Peter Hart from Hart Research, that he characterized the research of opinion researchers as delivering the baby. So in other words, you do all that you need to do, but then you handed the baby over. 
And for us, uh, in crisis communications, we, we live with the baby for much longer, mm -hmm. uh, but probably not forever. Right. Uh, it, there are some instances where the work would go on for, for years, but it wasn't like we were the firm of record representing a product. That wasn't our role, typically. Okay. So the engagements in, this, in the scheme of PR media probably on the shorter side. And compared to my previous work, every job has an element of crisis reputation management, but there was no intensity of repetition. So in firm work, where all you do is that, you become specialized in that and all your clients have that thread. What I don't have or what I hadn't had was vertical experience. And so my PR career is quite different than a lot of my colleagues in that they specialize in one vertical, healthcare, automotive, pharmaceutical. And I've been in politics, space, NASA, hightech.com, client agency side, PR, and, uh, and now healthcare. But the, the continuous thread to me is my learning in communications and marketing, my ability to navigate when things do go wrong. It's kind of that calm hand on the tiller that even when things go awry, we're going to get through this. Uh, but the, the thread of communications, no matter the vertical, clear messaging tied to what your vision is, your, your mission, those are, those are guiding principles no matter what your, your business is. So that's, that's the skill that I bring. There, what I also love is that now in healthcare, uh, working for Dartmouth Hitchcock, is that every day is a learning day. I'm able to act as a sponge and get joy by learning about things that I had no idea about last week. I just took it upon myself about a month ago to uh, sit in on two surgeries. So It's pretty amazing to watch. Pretty amazing. Yeah. What a privilege. I have access to it. Fortunately, I have the stomach for it. <laughs> but to watch people whose training is to open up the human body, yeah. change out an entire hip, and then within literally a number of hours, that person goes from hobbling to walking again. Yeah. Uh, somebody with who's in need of uh, prostatectomy. And this person is using a, a robot yeah. to do tiny incisions to excise the tumor and tumor tumorous tissues it's just it's mind-boggling and so i got to witness it not because just because it it's cool but i want to know more about the place i represent so that when i communicate it i can say with conviction this is a great place this is where great stuff happens so every day i try to challenge myself to learn more <laughs> What skills would you say you really refined and developed during your time at MSL Group TMG Strategies? The similar threads of dealing with the crisis that, that sometimes pure facts and science don't trump perception. That listening is a high art and the high art goes into opinion research. So the tool of opinion research can aid in your navigating clients' issues listening to various audience, audience segmentation, who are you really trying to talk to? Uh, the simple phrase, 
be hasty but not quick. So you want to get it right, but sometimes you need to get answers out quickly. So working with a team, whether the lawyers, the executive leadership, your colleagues, so that when an inquiry comes in and there's some strange law of crisis communications, they typically come in on Friday at 4 o'clock and the New York Times is calling and they want an answer for tomorrow's edition, you need to be get it around, to get the answer back to them quickly. Uh, no comment is not an answer. Uh, my old, old boss used to say, don't deny a known truth. So you got to tell the truth. Can't, can't make things up. Uh, you'll pay. Uh, you know, VW's recent uh, issues where the executive basically said in the first salvo uh, wasn't a problem, and then it became a problem. You're better off just slowing it down, getting the answer right before you say something that you'll regret later. So you were with the MSL group TMG Strategies in 2011 when you came to Dartmouth College to be the VP for communications. Uh, what drew you to Dartmouth College from, from MSL TMG? So I'd been with Dan for uh, nearly a decade, and he sold his, his firm to MSL Group. And what I had found is that we grew larger, some of the things that I enjoyed the most started ebbing. And it's nothing against MSL, they're an outstanding firm, but more of the work was being applied to things that were outside of crisis reputation. And uh, they were, I would call, broader corporate communications. So they went into the proactive. And I also thought, I've been with Dan this long. I'd like to try something on my own. What, what might I do next? So again, talking to some more mentors. One was a former general counsel at Columbia University. Uh, another was the global head at, of communications at General Motors. And they put me in touch with a recruiter. And the recruiter said, I have some jobs for you. One was with a client. I said, I can't, can't go there. That's, that's a client of ours. And another one was in a geography that I didn't want to really pursue. And then there was Dartmouth College. And I said, initially, uh, no thank you. Uh, I'm not a, not a higher ed guy. I'm a, I'm a corporate communicator. So six months rolls ahead and they're still looking. And, uh, I, talked to my former colleague the, and former general counsel at Columbia, and she said, you ought, to, you ought to take a look at it. So I was the, the dog chasing the bus, caught the bus, and here we are in Hanover in 2011. And that time, Jim Kim was the president, and Rollo had a year. He left to go to the World Bank. The whole leadership changed. And I remember Jim, Dr. Jim Weinstein was looking for a team. And so they asked, you know, what does it take to get someone of, uh, uh, like you to work at Dartmouth-Hitchcock? So, well, you probably need to get a position description that looks somewhat like this. You probably want to have a recruiter. And so I said to my wife, they're looking over there. I, I think I'd like to try that. And so I, I told Jim and some of his staff and put my hat in the ring. And obviously I, I got the role. And it's been one of the most gratifying things, again, kind of connecting back to NASA, in that every day I feel inspired by my colleagues, in that I get to learn from them, in that I'm working for a mission-oriented place that I'm immensely proud of, 
if you walk into the doors of Dartmouth Hitchcock uh, Medical Center and you see the breadth of people who are coming in and going out with, with hope and sometimes sadness because illness is not always kind, but looking to us to help them. And more often than not, we, even in, when illness is not kind, they're grateful for the care that my colleagues give them across the street. And I get so much satisfaction of just by the power of association and representing them and telling their story. Uh, I, I've, I've been uh, very thankful for the opportunity. So you started, but you started working at the college when you initially right. came. Right. And how did, the, how did that transition happen to, from the college to the hospital? So I was there for just under a year, and it, just the whole place was in leadership change with the president of the college leaving to go to the World Bank. Uh, my boss was moving on. She was the head of advancement. Pretty much every leader at that time has moved on. The whole, it was a leadership shift. And this opportunity arose, and I was able to make the, make the change. So before we kind of talk about specifically what you do day to day here for Dartmouth Hitchcock, can you talk a little bit, just a little bit about the organization itself? Give folks who aren't familiar with it a sense of the scope of the organization. Right. So Dartmouth Hitchcock is an academic health system. Uh, we have the principal hospital across the street here in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Uh, we have license for 396 beds. Uh, we have a total budget across the institution with over a billion dollars, over a thousand doctors across New Hampshire and Vermont. Uh, some of them practice in community group practices in uh, Man Manchester, Nashua, Keene, Concord. We have affiliate hospitals, including uh, Alice McDay right here in Lebanon, Windsor, uh, Mount Scutney in New London, New London Hospital, in Keene Cheshire Medical Center, and I think that covers it for now. Uh, we have a, um, a uh, National Cancer Institute, one of the 45 comprehensive cancer centers in the country, Norscon Cancer Center, and we have CHAD, the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. So it's a, it is the academic, the only academic health system in New Hampshire. And we are providing some of the highest, best care in the region. Of course, not too far from our region, we have some of the best care in the world in Boston. So people who are served by the medical community in New Hampshire, Vermont, and going down to uh, Massachusetts uh, have unbelievable choice. Unbelievable choice. And I don't know if people appreciate it here, but wow. And when I look at this, having come from Washington, D.C., where there's fine medical care, but to have the caliber of medical care in this region is to me somewhat of a miracle. How did it happen that an academic medical center would pop up of this magnitude in Lebanon, New Hampshire? Which so, a relatively rural area. Very rural area. Uh, it, the population of Hanover is 10,000 people. Uh, you add like 6,000 with, you know, undergrad and grad. Uh, so not very big. Lebanon, slightly bigger, but not much bigger. And the greater metropolis of the Upper Valley, I think, is if you add a fairly large swath, goes up to 100,000. But people are driving up and down 91 and parts of 89 to come to this place. 
Uh, and that really speaks to the quality of care that is offered at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. But as you look at the future of health care and people wanting and needing to get care closer to home on their terms at lower cost, at higher quality, we're having to look at the way we integrate our care with other hospitals and through technology so that perhaps with your iPhone or your doctor through technology and their ED at, in Windsor or maybe up north in the North Country, that they're accessing our ED without having to physically come into our ED. So the care can be rendered close to home, but they're getting the knowledge of the tertiary and quaternary physicians in our ED. Uh, that with partnerships in southern New Hampshire, we're able to serve their needs there uh, without everybody needing to come here. Or if we have a patient who has received replacement knee surgery, that they may recuperate at a nearby hospital so that the next bed is available for the high acuity case here, so that we're putting the right care in the right place without occupying valuable tertiary quaternary beds here. You have the role of Executive Vice President and Chief Communications and Marketing Officer. What do those titles mean and, and what are the roles implied by that? Eesh, yeah, uh, titles are don't mean a whole lot. The, the essence of it is the, that I head up Communications and Marketing, with, again, with a great team. And I would put my team with whom I'm privileged to work with here against anybody's team. Quite formidable. We have, in our team, we have media relations people who deal with the media every day. Uh, we have internal communicators uh, who are dealing with, you wouldn't believe how many internal communications we put out just about important meetings, regulatory requirements, benefits requirements. It's uh, so, so in this case, you're talking to your employees and, and people who are within the organization. Right, okay. right. And that's a big job. Okay. Uh, and it's an adage that I, I've used ever since uh, I started communications or learned about the importance of it, that internal communications is often seen as the poor stepchild of communications. But what I say is if you don't get internal communications right, you're probably not getting anything else right. So you need to pay attention to it and don't treat it like this poor stepchild because it will hurt you. Uh, we have a great team there. Uh, we also have a marketing team. Uh, marketing and healthcare can be seen as a four-letter word uh, or something bad in that healthcare shouldn't be sold, right? It should sure. be a educated choice. So I, too, kind of cringe at the term marketing, but intellectually I get why we do it. And I haven't come up with a better term to describe. Is it the patient education team? But in essence, we're trying to talk about the services that we provide and bring them to the people who make decisions, both the referring providers and our patients, so that when you want to make a choice that you can come to us, either for a first or a second opinion, and get to where you want to go. I don't think any patient or family member wants to feel like they're being sold a, uh, you know, a box of Cheerios. Sure. It's more important than that. Right. So you have internal, external, you have, you're doing communications and marketing. How are those two things different? So marketing in general never goes into the negative space. So you're not marketing that you missed your uh, financial targets, but you have to communicate it. You're not marketing that the person who just came in here 
for a knee replacement, then walked out in your parking lot, you forgot to ice it and broke their leg. I'm making things up. Mm -hmm. So communications is much more ample and it is the broad array of sharing stories or happenings or events pro proactively through media channels, uh, in internal and external. Marketing is more of the storytelling of what we do, but it's more in the zone of patient education. And for better or for worse, there are other choices. So you are trying to share why this choice against another choice should be one you should consider. So in the case of somebody who has complex uh, heart condition, you could drive two hours south to some hospitals of some note. Mm -hmm. Why should you stay here? Well, the reasons are that we have one of the lowest rates of readmissions in heart cases in the entire country. So that's a compelling fact. You go into a place that when they put you under and try to solve your problem, that the likelihood that you're going to come back to have it fixed again because they didn't get it quite right for a myriad of reasons is very good here. And it's not to say that the treatment down in a uh, southern-facing uh, state isn't good, but there's a compelling reason to stay here. It's close to home. Right. There's no issues with parking. People are damn nice. It's beautiful here. What from your prior experiences and jobs best prepared you for your current role here? Oh, that's a great question. I'm blanking on what one thing it might be. And so the answer I'm gravitating toward is that it's a combination of almost everything. And everything is positive and where uh, I've made mistakes. The, the most important things, and I've touched on it before, is the ability to listen very hard with the purpose of really hearing people so that you can incorporate that into your proposed solution. It's uh, looking at the world through the eyes of the people with whom you're trying to engage. So I heard a physician say this the other day, and I'm sure he didn't coin it, but he, he said, everybody tunes in to WIIFM. So WIIFM is what's in it for me. Ah, okay. WIIFM. Uh-huh. And I, that's really true. And that's true for politics as it is for healthcare, as it is for automotive. You have to tell a story, engage them on terms that are meaningful to them. And part of my work is to use the tools of communications and the great people with whom I work is to hone a message either through some opinion research or some testing and then to share it so that when they hear it, it becomes something they want to listen to and more importantly, hopefully advocate or act on it because if all they do is look at it, that's not enough. You want them to hopefully be part of your advocacy so that when the real decision is made, it's and that to me is the word of mouth. So what I often use as imagery is what do you say when you're in the grocery store and you're buying milk or eggs and somebody says to you, Mark, where do you go for your health care? My, my wife's not doing well. And you say, do you say, oh, oh, Dartmouth Hitchcock, oh, that's not so good. Or do you say, don't miss a beat. I went to Dartmouth Hitchcock, it's the best place in the world. So all the advertising, all the talking, is 
important, but the most important is that word of mouth. And that's built upon some of the pre-messaging that we've given you, but mostly on the experiences that you and your friends have had. And so the example might be in automotive. So when Honda's advertising, and their quality is hurting now, but not doing as well. But in the past, when you had the conversation about the Honda, and they say you have a Honda, part of the advertising is kind of the echoing of that word of mouth. Should I buy a Honda, Mark? It's like, yeah, I got one, it's great. Or do you say, God, I wish I bought a Buick. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna comment on that one, but. <laughs> you, so you mentioned earlier, you are kind of unusual in the in the field, in the communications field, because you don't have a lot of vertical experience, is the phrase you used. Uh, so healthcare, the, your experience here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, one of the kind of a world-class facility, is your first experience with healthcare. Correct. So what, what, what surprised you uh, when you came to, to Dartmouth-Hitchcock so about working in healthcare? It's my first extended experience and first proactive experience with healthcare. So in crisis communications, I had dealt okay. with a number of healthcare, but they but they tended to be in the reactive mode. So your answer is is ninety nine percent right, but not completely unfamiliar. the The difference for me is probably two things that come quickly to mind: is it's an industry in almost unbridled change. And there are different effects, technological, regulatory, uh, consumer demand that are creating this change. And what we know yesterday, or what we knew yesterday, I expect will be unbelievably different tomorrow. And those are in terms of time that I'm not quite sure of. So in 1980, uh, or it was maybe somewhere around there, would you have predicted that Sears would be a non-player and that some company would be selling things on something called the internet by the computer and they would deliver it to your door? You probably couldn't imagine that. And healthcare is not quite unlike that. Some of the technology that is being developed today is producing the infrastructure that the delivery of healthcare will be completely different than it was when I was a kid. And some of it's already happening. So the the added difficulty in all, all that recipe is the regulatory scheme. So it's the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Joint Commission, the state regulatory structures that almost keep the revolution of healthcare from advancing as quickly as probably consumers really want. And that that's, I'm not necessarily saying that's bad, but if some of the regulatory scheme weren't as tight, and I, I don't even know how you could make it looser, I expect that the Amazon of healthcare would be here already. Dartmouth-Hitchcock has a, a, a huge scope. You have primary care, which is very local, to research, which is international. How do you manage communications for all these levels of function, and, and how do you develop a kind of a coherent strategy around something that diverse and, and that wide? Uh, that's a great question, and again, it goes to having a team. And I, I'm privileged to serve with a group of people who manage all these pieces. 
and to say that I do everything w would be both a lie and insulting to the team who really make it happen. I have a core group who help me manage the team. So part of it is looking at the priorities of what the organization would like to achieve. Uh, working with Dr. Weinstein, our CEO, who I would put in the category of visionary. He cares very deeply and spends enormous amounts of energy on not only trying to help Dartmouth Hitchcock, but to try to help the future of healthcare. And I don't know how much you read about him and what he wants to achieve, but it's really at its core, and these are his words, to create a sustainable health system. So one that's built to last, one that's built on quality, one that uh, delivers on, uh, on cost, one that's patient-centered, one that makes employees who work for the healthcare system proud to work in it. So not a small challenge, but those are the, the, the glue for our, our work in every area is tied to our mission. And I shared before our conversation a little bit about what our mission is. And that, that, that's our guiding light. That helps drive the work of a nurse, a security guard, someone like me. We're all tied to a, a purpose. And the work in promotion, so if we're talking about promoting our work in sepsis, why do we talk about sepsis? It's not because it's just cool scientifically, but it helps save patient lives. We're reducing the number of people who die in the hospital uh, due to infection. And so that's principle number one. We're helping the patient and their family who are tied to them and care about them. But number two, you're providing better medical care. And number three, and what a great result, is it ends up costing less because you've done the right thing and treated them and now you're not dealing with longer stays, higher care with bad result. Can you talk about what a brand is? And specifically, what does it mean for a hospital to have a brand? And how much do you guys talk about brand management in right. the work you do? So a, a brand is the set of uh, emotions and characteristics, characteristics with which your customers uh, describe you. And that the brand that Dartmouth Hitchcock has is also tied to our higher education institution right down the road, Dartmouth College. So from the outset, by association, our brand is strong. And also by the performance on a year-to-year -year basis on patient outcomes, on cost, uh, and also the qualitative experiences that, like you, in the grocery aisle check, perhaps you've had somebody, nine times out of 10, we're fortunate, knock on wood, that people say, Dartmouth Hitchcock is the place to go in New Hampshire and Vermont. So the, that's the, the amalgam of a brand. Yes, we talk about it, but I, uh, we also talk about that brand is led by your day-to-day -day performance. We could put the most beautiful ads uh, out in the world and get in the New York Times and on television and every web property. But if we start performing badly in terms of quality and outcomes, all bets are off. So the brand is only as good as you deliver. So our job is partly in the description of the brand. And the real pride that I get is in retelling what actually happens, which is the most important part of the brand. And that's the work that happens within the health system. So if I didn't have both pieces, the, the most beautiful articulation in a story, 
an ad on social media, it wouldn't mean anything if it weren't lived and practiced in the hospital. What is strategic messaging? And can you kind of give an example of something that, can you give an example of that and maybe how you use it here? Right. So I think about it as a bit of a yin and yang. So as any organization has a, uh, any good organization should have a strategy. And a strategy is a goal, and your tactics are the methods by which you hope to achieve that goal. And the messaging are the verbalizations through myriad channels and techniques to a public. And for strategic messaging to work, kind of going to the WIIFM, what's in it for me, the messaging uh, has to resonate with the audience. So if I tell you, that you really ought to buy a three-wheel bicycle because it's, you know, three-wheel bicycles are cool. So, well, I, I live on a mountain and I live 20 miles from work. He doesn't know me, doesn't know my life. Why is he talking to me about three-wheel bicycle? So strategic messaging is about understanding the, the yin and yang, the continuum of the, the conversation that takes place between, in this case, a academic health system and its patients and their families. And that has to be a two-way conversation to work. So that's strategic messaging. It's an understanding of who you're talking to, having a two-way loop, and some of that is whether it's through its opinion research or individual listening. It has to be, uh, has to recognize that, that two-way conversation. Okay. What kind of mistakes do healthcare executives, healthcare leaders, whether that's physicians or administrators make when dealing with the press in your experience? Um, not necessarily here, since you've dealt with them in the past, uh, but kind of what makes you cringe when you see someone out interacting with the press or, or trying to tell their story and say, I would have done it differently? I think the common thread, in, and it doesn't just apply to healthcare, it's, it's talking and acting as if you are above your customer or, or reproach or investigation and that I just know. And the customer, it doesn't matter, the industry doesn't like to be treated like that. Nobody likes to be treated as if they just know and you don't. They, so in great healthcare, and at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we call it shared decision-making, Part of coming to a decision, particularly in tough medical instances, you want to be a partner with your caregiving team on your destination. So you want to learn what the doctor has to say. You want to have it brought to you as these are the choices, and here are some thoughts on it, but you'd also like to weigh in because it's you. So in media, you know, part of it is having that attuned ear to your audience that you're bringing something to them to share, but to uh, do in a way that's thoughtful to them as a customer so they can be part of that equation. Are you also communicating with regulators and legislators at the state or national level given Dartmouth is that does start this prominence is that that, that does happen group? those are different types of discussions and mm -hmm. different audiences right and uh, but in this, but it's also similarly you don't want to communicate to them that you got it all wrong you don't know what you're talking about you want to have a conversation here's our case 
I understand you have a job to do, and but here are th some factors you should consider as you evaluate X. So part of it is in the presentation. How has social media changed the PR communications landscape? It's changed just about everything. Changed about just about everything. Yeah, it's fascinating. So obviously it's relatively new in the scheme of my life with real social media probably kicking off intensely 2006, 2007 with Facebook and now myriad channels and web properties where things are shared and media, the description of journalism has gone way beyond what journalism was before. And the, the amount of, uh, the ability of, to target specific audiences using data and analytics, it's mind-boggling. So it has changed just about everything. Are there other important ways that communication strategy has evolved over your career? Or is, or is social media just such a dominant change? So looking ahead, I, th you know, I think there's a couple things that happen. It's not only do the platforms change, but the appetite of the consumers change. So in other words, my parents didn't grow up with social media, didn't have handhelds or laptops or tablets. And the doctor-patient relationship was, as one doctor kind of jokingly says about the past, uh, shared decision-making meant that uh, I'm the doctor and I'm going to share my decision with you. It was, that was the old paradigm. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, you know, turning the clock ahead, we, the, the handheld is a device with which you expect relationships to come to, to solve your problems quickly. And that's also happening in healthcare. So there's demand, consumer-based demand, that medicine change to adapt to consumer needs. I want to get my care on the times and terms that I want it. And so we're evolving. So it's bigger than social media. It's also technology. The ability of data to help you solve uh, medicine so that the population with chronic diabetes gets uh, segmented, gets communicated with, they get educated, they have care managers with whom they hopefully get better faster and stay out of the ED, lowering costs, and see the right type of doctor and get well, hopefully. That's using technology and in, in, in uses some of the same tools that social media does just in a communication sense, but for, for medicine in a very good way. So it's, it's beyond social media. I think it's social media and the ability to slice, segment populations using data, preferences, personalization in a way that didn't exist 10 years ago. Can you give a lesson learned about communications that maybe you, you maybe made a mistake and you've kind of learned from it and, and, and built on it in your career? So kind of going to um, be quick but not hasty, uh, it's really important to not go so fast that you didn't examine the whys of what you're doing. To do the research to understand the context of the inquiry that's coming in. To listen deeply and allow the information to be absorbed so that you can solve the question at hand in a way that gets you the right result. I think that is the most important thing. And I mentioned again, it is going to the learning of 
that when something comes in and is presented as a, a fact, it's not that you need to be so skeptical that, that you say, Mark, how do I know your Mark? But just do a little bit of investigation so that you understand what the, what the context is, so that when you're representing something, that it, you have a very high degree of confidence that when you represent it again, that it is fact, that you can, uh, can share in a way that you've dug deeply enough so that you understand the facts so that you can persuade others. There's an Einstein quote, and I, I'm not great at uh, always getting it quite right, but the paraphrase is, if you can't communicate it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I think that's beautifully said. That's a great quote. Yeah. It's beautifully said. And that happens a lot in communications. So as much as I'd like to think that my team is the, the arbiter of all things well communicated and done perfectly, we're not. We make mistakes too. But it happens a lot. Things come to us and they are difficult to understand. So our job is to be the helpful agents with the, our colleagues who are trying to share something, bring it down to a level that's understandable, meaningful, what's in it for them, why say it at all. The other thing that I've learned, and this is probably not terribly unique, but I see it's an ongoing debate in communications, is the uh, death of the press release. So the press release used to be more of a vehicle of official communications that actually, that often received attention. And to me, the only reason for doing a press release nowadays is to put an official marker on the internet that something was done that most people didn't care about. I'm being a little bit harsh, but usually if you have something worth sharing, you, the best tactic is to come up with a cogent couple of paragraphs, communicate that with the media outlets with whom you have a relationship or some connection to, one-to-one, -one, and hopefully make each one of those little two-paragraph entrees to those outlets somewhat individualized so you know why they care about it. If it's really important, you probably could go to one or two outlets and that will be your press release because it, the story will spin out of that. But most often when we're asked to do press releases, they're formulaic and unnecessary and except for having something official on the website. Roddy Young and Mark decided to open up 24-hour concierge medicine today and we put the official press release out. If we're lucky, somebody in you know Medicine News writes about it. But they know you and I have no standing in medicine. We <laughs> right. have no money. So right. I'm being a little bit uh, uh, hyperbolic for the purposes of sure. making the point. But I, yeah. I think that's one thing that's evolved over time. Press releases have, I think, kind of waned in their effect. And they need to be questioned. Are you a member of any professional organizations? And if so, which ones? And have they been important to your career development? That's a great question. N mostly no. And it's not that I'm against the organizations. I, they're probably fine. I do participate now in, it used to be called UHC, and it used to stand for University Health Consortium, and they just changed their name to Vizient. And basically it's a grouping of people who have the same job as I do in other academic health systems. Okay. And we meet um, annually, and it's a great chance to learn from each other. 
uh, listen to the, the problems of the day, listen to the tools and techniques of the day to share pursuits. And I find that immensely gratifying, educational, and refreshing. The, um, the associations in my field are probably fine. I, I, I've, I've spent more time personally in working in my field, trying to talk to the people in my field while I do it. And that's where I get my professional, some of the, the connections with uh, my colleagues. And as much as possible, trying to learn from the people who are the closest to me. Uh, like I, I mentioned about uh, each of my bosses, whether it's Dr. Weinstein or Dan Golden at NASA or Dan McGinn at uh, uh, my old firm. Those are some of the best experiences that I've had in enjoying the from people who are in my, my field or as leaders in messaging, because all CEOs have to be leaders in messaging. Okay. So final question. Um, for early careerists who think communication sounds like an interesting career choice to pursue, how would you recommend they go about pursuing the field? What education, training, jobs should they, should they be pursuing? One way is... If you know you're interested, obviously in college, invest in writing, some type of persuasive argument type of classes, whether it's history where you need to know the topic and, and make your assertions based on what you've learned. That, because communication isn't just good writing, it's good persuasive writing. Try to get a, some type of internship while you're in school in your field. Try to spend some time in, in the space so you're seeing what others are doing. So early on, uh, and I do informational interviews. It just takes an hour and a cup of coffee with, and you may get uh, out of four people, one person will say yes, but that's all you need is someone to say yes and to listen to you and share with you their experiences and get to get a sense of what makes you tick. What, what do you love about what they do that you could see yourself doing? And then don't be limited by what people tell you you can or can't do. Do what you think you can or can't do. There will be people who say you can't get there from here. I think you need to follow your heart, try to pursue what is valuable to you and what makes you tick, and everything else tends to follow. That's great advice. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.